So Malachi uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. This is the last uh, book in your uh, Old Testament. Malachi 1.1, 1, 1, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of our Lord. Um, I don't know if um, you've ever had the experience of overhearing an argument in a public place. It's very awkward. Imagine um, a couple, two or three tables away from you in a restaurant who allow their tense conversation to escalate to such a degree that you and the folks at the table next to you begin to make innocent glances to one another, acknowledging that you hear the developing fracas over there. And a glance says they're having some kind of day, aren't they? And as the intensity rises three tables away, your table conversation begins to grow quiet so that you can hear better this table of war and your neighborliness with the table next to you, a fellow table of peace, begins to perceptibly strengthen. Not only are the uh, tables of peace suddenly friends, but they each ally themselves into a league of moral judgment, listening more carefully to the table of war over there, And speaking without words to one another, how deplorable it is that this couple is unable to control themselves and act decently in public. It's awkward for everyone who can overhear the argument three tables away. And what we're going to hear six times over six Sundays are conversations like this. A few tables away, we'll get to hear God's people. And we'll get to hear them argue with God. And the debates that they initiate with God are not tame, and they're not just mildly antisocial. I want you to see each Sunday that they are angrily throwing dishes at God. This is part of the organizing principle behind the four short chapters that we find in Malachi. As the prophet Malachi is called by the Holy Spirit to reveal God's opinion to the people of Jerusalem in the 5th century, the Holy Spirit organizes Malachi's book according to six separate fights or six separate debates that the people initiate with God. And we're going to look at all of them. Right now, I want to offer you a word of warning. The arguments that we're going to overhear in Malachi display the wretchedness of the people of Jerusalem. And we, while we might not think that we're quite as bad as them, keep in mind that these sins are not entirely foreign to us. That is, within the behavior of Malachi's audience, we find a bit of ourselves. And sometimes the audacious things that the people of Jerusalem say to God, you have said that very thing to God yourself, and so have I. And this morning, the people of Jerusalem will say this to God, How have you loved us? That is, we see no evidence that you love us at all. Have you ever challenged God in this way? I suspect that many Christians here have come against uh, various hardships in life that has made you, like Malachi's audience, wonder if God really did love you. 
Maybe your debate with God didn't overflow into an embarrassing restaurant scene. Perhaps it was private. And perhaps it didn't last very long. On a Friday, you were convinced He loved you. Come Monday, you wonder deeply if He did love you, but you were okay again by Wednesday. But sometimes it's not the matter of a quiet or a loud debate. Sometimes it's not the matter of a short or a long debate. Sometimes it's just an attitude, a disturbance of the soul. And it it clouds our relationship with God, a a distance from God that may not sound like a debate, but in in a certain way it feels like one. In a poem that was written by the hymn writer and pastor John Newton, which to my knowledge, this poem has never been set to music. It's uh, collected in his only hymns. He writes this, he says, "'Tis a strange, mysterious life I live from day to day, light and darkness, peace and strife bear an alternate sway.'" He's describing the Christian life. Sometimes he has peace, sometimes he has strife, sometimes light, sometimes darkness. And he goes on, he says, "'When I think the battle won, I have to fight it all over again.'" What an interesting confession from a minister of the gospel. Because sometimes we, like Malachi's audience, wonder if God loves us. And I believe that this passage says to those who come to Him in faith, indeed, He does love us. For the love of God is actually rooted in the character of God. The love of God, His love, His affection is actually rooted in His character. I want to begin by drawing your attention to some items that you'll need to keep in your mind, not just for this passage, but for each of the six passages in this sermon series. These items uh, have to do with the man Malachi, and they have to do with the era in which he is preaching. And first, the man Malachi. Look at the first verse, verse 1. Most Bible translations say this, "...the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi." Now, since Malachi in the Hebrew literally means my messenger, some translators say that verse 1 ought to read like this, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by my messenger. No proper name mentioned at all. It's not a man there, it's a title. If you look at Malachi 3.1, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Malachi 3.1. You know why they say this. 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messengers. In the Hebrew, as you read, Behold, I send my messenger, you read Malachi. And so some commentators will presume that since 3.1 is not a proper name, then 1.1 isn't a proper name either. But just so you know where I stand, I believe that 1.1 represents a pattern found in more than 10 of the minor prophets, a prophetic works in which the author's name is mentioned in the first verse. Malachi, I believe, is a real man. But there's something about his era that you also need to grasp. Not only is he a real man... There are some fascinating things that arise out of the generation in which Malachi grows up. It is so much like our own generation. He lived in a period in which there was this enormous shift going on between the old era and the new era, culturally, ethnically, technologically. To understand this, I need to give you just a little bit, just a little, I promise just a little, a little history lesson. You see, the people in political control during Malachi's life are the Persians, the largest empire that the world has ever seen at this time. And the Persian people come from Iran, but their power stretches all the way from northern Egypt to Macedonia, that's north of Greece, to India. 
And the Persian leaders didn't have just one capital, they actually had five capitals, so vast was their territory. And similarly, these Persians had a very complex system of government that would later be copied by the Romans. Not just their politics was different than the Babylonians, but so too was their language and their ethnicity and their appearance and their religion. Everything was different from the Babylonians. Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were exiled by whom? By the Babylonians. But after only 30 years, the Persian Empire assumed power under their first king, King Cyrus. Now, it is very important that we understand Malachi's perspective on the history of his nation. His nation was given a second chance about 90 to 100 years ago, 538 B.C. to be precise. A hundred years prior to his preaching ministry, his nation was given a second chance. The Jews who had been taken captive in Babylon were finally allowed to return by the mercy of God. And when this happened, Judea, which the Persians called the land of Yehud, Judea, when the people of Israel were finally allowed to return, this again was 90 to 100 years ago, Judea was about about 600 square miles in size, about the size of Houston. It's about the size of Houston, the entire nation, if it could even be called a nation. And whereas Houston has some two million inhabitants, there was hardly any people in this nation the size of Houston. There was about 150,000 people. And not only that, there was virtually no infrastructure. Almost every village had been destroyed. Almost every field had been burned. All of Judea's neighbors were tightly encroached around her unprotected borders. And the closeness led not just to conflict and xenophobic distrust, but also partnerships and intermarriages with her neighbors. Remember, from from Malachi's perspective, this humble rebirth of this nation happened some 90 to 100 years ago. It would be as if the founding of our nation took place around 1925. That's the age of this this, uh, nation in which Malachi is born. Now, the returning exiles, they embark upon a program as soon as they get into Judea to rebuild the temple, and we might think that this is simply an architectural program. But the people are rebuilding the temple because they have a hope. They have a hope that they are able to reestablish the political stability of Judea. They have a hope that they will be able to reestablish the religious shape of Judea. They have a hope to reestablish the manner of life of Judea. And with the encouragements of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the Jewish people were certain that the completion of the temple would usher in a new era of life. Life the way it used to be. And they completed the temple. And after the sound of rocks being moved, rocks being chipped and stacked, the grunts of working men, after all of that noise of the work towards building the temple, it was followed by the sound of crickets, metaphorically speaking. There was silence. And that great restoration that they were hoping for actually didn't come to happen. Nothing happened. You see, this is Malachi He's preaching to a people who have very recently exited a period of euphoric excitement. About 40 to 60 years ago, the people of Judea had finished the temple and they were going to recreate the world. They were united by this laser-focused vision to restore the era of King David, but it didn't happen, just crickets. And that was 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. And here's what I want you to consider. Malachi is preaching to a very divided people, and they're divided by age, they're divided by culture, they're even divided by technology. 
If Malachi were preaching today, his audience would be divided like this. You ready for this? This is very important. Some of the people in Malachi's audience were alive when the temple was constructed. Some, what, 40, 50 years ago? Let's say the temple was constructed in 1965, maybe 1970. Some of the people in Malachi's audience are old enough to have been alive when the temple was constructed. These older people never fully embraced Persian culture, not at least emotionally. They were born in Babylon, but their parents weren't. Growing up in Babylon, their parents told them all about Jerusalem of the past, stories of the good old days when there was a city and there was a temple and there were farms and there was a modicum of independence. When Cyrus began to let the people return to Jerusalem, the older people in Malachi's audience, they were the first ones on the train. Those were the ones who gave up in their individual lives, gave up their individual businesses in order to sacrifice that for, for that which would be corporate, the building of the temple to be used by all. This is that great generation, and it's there in Malachi's, so to speak, church. They're the older people, and he's preaching to them. They sacrificed mightily to build the temple back in the day. Again, 1965-1970. And these people are not ready to be Persian. Many of these older folks, perhaps not all of them, are still waiting for a restoration. They've been waiting for the past 30 years. Of course, some have become jaded, like the younger people. You see, the young people in Malachi's audience, people closer to his age, these people were not born in Babylon. They were born in dusty Judea, just like Malachi, and they have never known their homeland not being firmly under Persian control. Perhaps some of the more idealistic young people hope for a return to the days of King David, but most don't. Most are perfectly fine living in Persia. It's all they know, and Persia is the empire that the world longs to be like. There are opportunities to make money. There are opportunities to build a business, to travel in safety. Their children will most certainly have better lives, more luxurious lives than they did. These people, these young people, are not likely to pine for the brief bit of glory that happened in 1965 when they weren't even born. And the only relic from that era is a derelict temple that surely pales in comparison to even the most tawdry building in one of Persia's five capitals. They love their parents, but mom and dad are stodgy. And their religion is stodgy. And the changing world is making mom and dad increasingly irrelevant. Does this feel familiar to anyone? I should think so. Imagine Malachi's audience entering a gallery filled with paintings by Norman Rockwell. And half of the people as they stream into that gallery study the paintings and they sigh longingly for the good old days, some with tears running down their cheeks. But the other half of the audience, they wander through the galleries of Norman Rockwell bewilderingly, not even knowing what kind of depictions they're looking at. And they wonder why the others are sighing over such foreign scenes. The visitors are divided, just as Malachi's audience is divided. It's like they've come from two different worlds. And they're there, listening, as Malachi has given a word to preach to them. Two different worlds. An old Jewish world that has a Babylonian tinge and a new, modern Persian world filled with hope. How are these people united at all? 
And what we read when we read the beginning of Malachi is is that they're united in this way. All of them debate God. Isn't that sobering? All of them debate God. You know, the Bible says that not everyone is a Christian, that some people are believers and some people are not believers. But when it comes to describing what all people have in common, the Bible is very clear. All humankind is riddled with the pollution of Adam's sin. How are these people united together? They're united in their sinfulness. And so we want to look at the question that both old and young pose to God in verse 2. How have you loved us? In uh, James chapter 4, the first couple of verses, we have this insightful passage about what arguments or debates or conflict is like. James writes this. He says, what causes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Interesting. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, this is the current running underneath all of our human relationships, the tragic reality that all of my arguments with my fellow human actually reveals something about my own fight against indwelling sin is hard to hear. That phrase, indwelling sin, maybe you've not heard that before. It was popularized by an English Puritan of the name John Owen. Indwelling sin, he says, is the remainder of sin. The remainder of sin. And it sticks around in a person even after their conversion. Owen says this. He says, Indwelling sin is a powerful stream that is strong to swim against. And unfortunately, this current of indwelling sin regularly gives birth to arguments. And if we could unify Malachi's audience, I think we'd have to say this. That young and old are united in their indwelling sin. And at the core, they want to know the real evidence of God's love. When they ask how God has loved them, they're looking for God to point to some kind of evidence that would substantiate his claim of verse 2. Verse 2 says, I have loved you. And they want proof. But all of us ought to notice, shouldn't we? That the only reason this matter makes it on the table is because God is the one who begins speaking. It begins not because they suspect that God loves them and they want proof. It's not because they have heard some kind of rumor spreading round about that God has some kind of affection for them. The God of the heavens might actually love them. It's not as if they've heard this rumor and then like really good scientists, they have to test the hypothesis. No. Verse 2 tells us that it is no supposition, no hypothesis. God says undeniably, I have loved you. God has made an assertion of fact. And that's what gets this conversation going. It's challenging God's assertion. And God asserts that He has loved them in the same way that the Bible says God has created, God has made, God has given. All of these statements about the actions of God that are true to His very character, uh, God has judged, God has spoken, and God has loved. And it seems as though there are certain things that God does for which the people in Malachi's church aren't going to complain about. No one's complaining that God has created or made or given or heard or judged or spoken. They complain about His love. When God comes closest to Him, when He promises affection for them, they demure and then they fight. Why is that? When God comes closest to them, their response is to fight against God. I think perhaps we know that feeling. 
It would seem that many people are perfectly content to deal with God in the abstract, at a distance, to handle him with, as it were, robotic arms or the controls of a joystick. Many people are willing to have loose interactions on the subject matter of God, philosophizing over him with a cup of cappuccino. But to physically touch him, to be close to him, that can't happen. I won't allow it. And we know people like this. We know that they're willing to talk about God on the abstract, but not in the concrete. I'll talk about God. I'll talk about the mysteries of the spheres, the incorporeal state of man, but I won't have him. I'll talk about him, but that's all I'll do. The problem with this plan of action is that God actually doesn't follow that. You know people like this. I'll talk about him in the abstract, but I won't talk personally with him. But God doesn't follow this rule, does he? Let me tell you what I mean. When Adam and Eve sin, when they rebel against God, what does God do? God pursues them. He chases them. He finds them. He speaks to them. He clothes them. And as He sends them out of the garden, don't forget that He also protects them. And as they have left the garden, God continues to interact with them. How does He interact with them? The same way that He interacts with the world around us. Through creation, through conscience, and through constitution. I'm going to mention these three later. He interacts because he has created. He's shown his divine power in the things that have been made. And he, re- he interacts with them in their conscience. He has embedded in their conscience a sense of right and wrong. It can be seared to be sure, but it's there. And he interacts with them in terms of their constitution, how they are crafted, assembled as human beings. God has marked them with his image so that they are created to image him, to create and to rule and to love and to relate. Creation, conscience, and constitution, God has never stopped engaging His creatures. He makes Himself known. And as we wish to keep Him at a distance and speak about Him in the abstract, God won't have it. He lunges after us. And the chief way that He has shown His lunging after us is not in creation, it's not in conscience, it's not in constitution, but it's in sending His Son into the world. His only begotten Son sent into the world. Jesus Christ enters time, enters space to make it once and for all clear that God is close at hand. And as I have said to you over the past couple of weeks looking at Luke's Gospel, Jesus demands to be dealt with. Try as you might to deal with God in the abstract. He has come close and you must deal with His only begotten Son. So when they ask this question, how have you loved us? There's more than meets the eye. They're they're making some very critical assumptions in asking that question. And we need to see those assumptions because even as Christians, we will ask that question. The first assumption that they make is this, is that God is reliable most of the time, but not all the time. God tells the truth most of the time. 90% of the time even, he's trustworthy. But there's always that 10%, and you need to look out for that 10%. Occasionally, you need to check his references. He's the most honest figure in the entire creation, but he's still only 90% reliable. This is a denigration of his character that's been assumed by that question, how have you loved us? The second assumption that they make is the people that Malachi is preaching to think that they are equal negotiating partners with God. 
They assume that there's some common ground in which they and God can meet to square up their differences. God may have more assets and he may have more influence, but for this particular negotiation, the partners are equal. It's as if the seller's agent and the buyer's agent sit at the same round laminated table with a stack of papers between them and ink pens at the ready. For the time being, for this negotiation, they're equal partners. But that too is a denigration of the character of God. How can you ever sit at a table and be an equal partner with God as you negotiate? But that's an assumption that they make in the question, how have you loved us? There's a third assumption that they make, and that's this. They make the assumption that they have the power to make accusations. According to verse 2, God has asserted his love for the people of Jerusalem. Here should end the story. However, it isn't the end of the story. The people have made this charge. They have found an allegation to bring to God. They have power and authority, they believe, to make this allegation as a citizen's arrest. And this, again, is a denigration of the character of God. There's so much wound up in this question, how have you loved us? But what do these unspoken assumptions say about the people of Jerusalem? To assume that God needs to prove himself? To assume that God is reliable only some of the time? To assume that they're equal partners at the table? Uh, To assume that they can make an allegation of God? Well, that's nothing shy of assuming that they are either of equal character to God or more likely they are of superior character to God. There can be no other way to look at this. Take this to heart, Christian. There are times when we speak about our God in this way, and perhaps it's not public. And perhaps it's not standing in a broad open desert with our fists pumping at, this, at the sky at this God. Perhaps it isn't. However, we make these assumptions. We are not on equal footing with him. When he speaks the truth, it is the truth. It is always reliable. And I never have a position as a creature, not the creator, to chastise, make allegations of the creator. It is something about the historical setting, which I didn't mention earlier, but I'm going to tell you now, that during the period of the exile, there are neighbors of Judah that had actually encroached upon her historic territory, and one of these neighbors was a particular nemesis by the name of Edom. Perhaps you recall in Genesis 25 that Rebekah became pregnant with twins, and um, she, uh, this was just before the Egyptian captivity that she and Isaac welcomed into the world uh, two, uh, two children, actually, uh, Adam or Esau is the firstborn, and then Jacob. And these two men couldn't be more different. Esau was the hairy outdoorsman loved by dad, and Jacob the smooth-skinned man of the indoors loved by mom. And over time, God decided to show his love for his people in two ways. In two ways, this is what God decided to do. God said that he would make a special provision for the younger one, not the eldest. That the younger one, Jacob, would inherit the covenant promises originally made to Adam and Eve that he would one day crush the head of Satan. A covenant promise reiterated to Abraham and to Jacob's father Isaac. God said that Jacob would be his focus of affection and through Jacob would come the consummation of all of his promises. That was one kid. And then the other kid, Esau, actually the one who was firstborn, uh, God said that he would show this special provision to the younger by containing the older one so that the older would never pose any kind of threat to the younger. And despite the fact that Esau was older and stronger and the clear paradigm of strength and mastery, God would limit him. He will become a nation, this Esau, but he'll never become a nation that gets the upper hand on God's love for Jacob, who was ultimately renamed by God Israel. Now, 
There are two realities for both men here. A reality of God's election. God made his decisions about these two boys before they were born. And also a reality about their own behavior, the behavior of these two boys. Clearly, God pronounces a future for Jacob that is very different than the future that he has for Edom. And in Romans 9.13, Paul quotes verses 2 and 3 of our passage. And he says that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. And that this affection happened before either of them were even born. God had a plan for these two men. We call this plan his electing plan. There was no quality of these men that coerced God to initiate his plan. Now, Isaac knew this, the dad. And by faith, he blesses both of these boys accordingly. Hebrews 11.20 says that he blessed these boys. But before we cry foul that God has predetermined a reality for these two boys, their behavior actually displays exactly what God elected. Having neither been forced nor coerced, Esau is truly immoral, truly wicked, truly faithless. Hebrews 12.16 makes this clear. And Jacob is truly faithful to God. So when God proves his love for Malachi's audience, the audience shouts at God, how have you loved us? God could either insist on the love that he has shown for Jacob's line, or he could insist on the containment that he has shown for Edom's line. He could do either one. He could assert his electing power over the one boy, or he could assert that elective power over the other boy. But he chose Edom. Why? Here's what you need to know. Historically, during the exile, Edom occupied a territory very close to the people of Judea. You see, Edom used to be on the other side of the Jordan River, far to the southeast, like, like Florida of Israel, far out there that no one thinks about. Or I guess you could say Alaska, couldn't you? But that's where Edom used to be. But during the exile, Edom encroaches in and comes up very close to the historic territory of Judea. And so when the Jews returned some 90 years ago in Malachi's preaching ministry, Edom is their new neighbor to the south, right across the border. They were larger than were Judea. They were more powerful. And they got a head start on rebuilding. And now they're next door neighbors. The younger people in Malachi's audience believe that God has placed them in unnecessary danger. These people are scary and they keep an eye on Adam. But the older people in Malachi's audience believe that, yes, indeed, they're dangerous people, but that God has broken his promise in bringing them so close to us. God has failed. He has failed. This is proof that he doesn't love us. But God assures both parties, the old people in Malachi's audience and the young people, that as they watch Adam, they will see God's promises come to fruition. As they see this, they will know that God loves them. Look at verse 4. Even if Adam says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now, here is not a new promise, but it's an old promise. That's retold again, 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 again. That's our Christian life. Hearing God's old promises retold to us that we would trust his character more and more. Do you think that this means nothing to you? What if God's character really is unchanging? What if he never tells a lie? You know, there's a promise of Jesus here. The Greek name for Edom is the land of the, Edomite, uh, the, land of the Edomites is actually Idumea. This people group that is south of Judea, they grow and they fester and they're there in the time of Jesus. And do you know who the greatest Idumean person ever to live was or ever will live? Herod the Great. 
Herod the Great, the very man who tried to kill the child Jesus, he is an Edomite, and he's there. He's a neighbor with the people. He has power over the people now. And he tries to kill Jesus. And the story is told in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, that he killed many people to be sure this Herod did, a wicked man. But he was unable to kill Jesus. We wonder why he was troubled. He was troubled because he's never been stopped in the murder of someone before. But he couldn't kill Jesus. You know, see, here is a promise that we all want to hear. Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? The Edomites won't. Herod the Great, the leader of the entire province, far larger than the size of of, uh, Houston, that man could not kill our Savior. In God's very character of election, in his eternal plans, he has promised to save all of those who come to his Son in trust. We will have occasions in life where we ask God, how do you love us? But the answer is not going to come to us from creation. I look around at creation and there's my answer. That's how I know he loves me. That's not your answer. And you don't look inwardly, inwardly and say, I still have my conscience, therefore God loves me. And you don't think about how you were made. I was made in God's glorious image, therefore God loves me. That is not how you discern that God loves you. You discern that God loves you when you look to his only begotten son. And you see that he was sent, that he might be your righteousness. That God has come to you close through that son. And as you trust that son, you will have life and you will have life abundant and everlasting. And as we study Malachi together, I want us to begin to realize areas in our own sanctification in which indwelling sin has produced an argumentative attitude towards God, even if it's not a full-blown debate. I think that you'll find from this book of the Bible that you bear some resemblance with the people of Jerusalem. And so we do. I suggest that we need to confess these resemblances where we ourselves have brought down the character of God that he might become to us more manageable. We have refused to trust him in his son, Jesus Christ, and have looked for other ways to trust God. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a promise of God. This is a humbling book to the Christian because the debates that, that Malachi's audience initiate are debates that we initiate. And I want us to begin to see areas in our sanctification where indwelling sin has gotten the better of us and we have debated with God. But I also want us to learn more about the perfect attitude of our Lord and Master. He was perfect in every way. Never once did he argue with God. I can quote John Owen again. Jesus displayed the gracious, holy actings of his human nature in the way of zeal, in the way of love, in the way of obedience, in the way of patience, and all the other graces of the Holy Spirit unto their utmost glory. And he was himself the most glorious spectacle unto God. That is the one who has saved you. That is the one who is the most glorious spectacle unto God. And God has given him to you that you might be not simply Israel, Jacob received the name Israel, but that you might be a part of Israel by having faith in the true Israel. That's what the preservation of Jacob is all about. It's all about Jesus. And that's what the the containment of Edom is all about. It's all about Jesus. He is the only answer to our longing for confidence that God loves us. 
He is God's character of affection, the true Israel, the true Jacob. How do you love me, we say to God? Look to my son, he says to us. This is his love. Receive him if you have not already. Talk to me. Talk to virtually anyone in this church who claims to have received Christ, and they'll tell you what that means. Receive him if you have not. Worship him if you have. This is God's character of affection. Let's uh, pray together, and then we'll come and continue to celebrate this Jesus at the table. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to us. Thank you for uh, giving a person behind your affection, that we would see him, that he would become a part of time and space in such a way that he can be acknowledged, trusted in. Thank you, Father, for coming to us. Our Father, we pray for those who have not trusted the Savior, and we pray that they would trust him. And as they do so, they taste your affection. Not just now, and not just when the enemies are small, but even when the enemies are big, and for all eternity. Father, thank you for sending Jesus in his name. Amen. You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org.